welcome to episode 33 of Larry Dowdy Mike Side. Today, we're talking vinyl records and their value with my radio friend from Maine, Mighty John Marshall, the record guy, and his website, moneymusic.com. Welcome to the podcast, Mighty John. Hey, Larry, great to be with you. You spent a lot of time up and down the radio dial as a DJ. When did you realize vinyl was a big moneymaker. Well, you know, I grew up across the street from a jukebox distributor, and that's how I got into this, because when they were done with the records in the jukeboxes, they would sell them in their shop for a nickel apiece. And I would buy the ones that I liked, uh, purely for the love of the music, never thinking at some point in time uh, they'd be worth money. And I think it was like for my 25th, 26th birthday, I got a book on record collecting, And that kind of started my interest in it. And of course, when I got into radio, records were everywhere, and I was beginning to know what they were worth. And so I would collect all the records that came into the radio station when the foolish program director would say, you want those? We were going to throw them out. And I said, yeah, I'll take them. Thanks. And you know, the really strange thing about it, I worked for several years with Stephen King, and we were in his office one day. He was writing, and when he writes, he has the uh, stereo full blast and he's sitting in his chair with the wheels on it and he's rolling all over the place over the records and one day he broke a Beatles record and I said to him you know you just broke that record it's worth a hundred bucks he says, what are you talking about I said that's worth a hundred dollars he said I paid a dollar ninety eight for it I said well you know it's amazing to me how many people have no idea about the potential value they have in their vinyl records and I remember him saying well why don't you tell them? And that was in the back of my mind for a long time. And when I got out of radio, I went to work for a marketing company, learned how to market a product. And those words stuck with me. And I said, you know, what do I know that the average person doesn't know? And uh, that was the value of records. And that's basically how it all started and where we are today. So is there any truth to the rumor after uh, Stephen King rolled over that record, you told him it was worth a hundred bucks. He didn't pay you that day. (laughs) He didn't care. (laughs) I just, (laughs) (laughs) uh, what do I care? Yeah, that's right. You don't care. You can afford to buy, you know, the Beatles themselves. So, uh, well, since you went there, I've got to ask the question. So what was it like working for Stephen King? Eerie? Well, you know, people always ask me that question. And the first answer that comes to my mind is one that people never expect. And that is, he is a wonderful family man. And that's what I always admired about him, how well he treated his family, how how much he loved them and how much they loved him. Just as a normal man, not as Stephen King superstar. So that really impressed me. But if you were to ask him, Stephen, what are you really like? His answer would be, I have the heart of a small boy, and it's in a jar on my desk. <laughs> so, but uh, he's a very nice guy, very generous. And another thing that I like about him, whether you were you know, the president of the United States or a factory worker, uh, he would treat you with the same respect. And that's what I really, really admired about him as well. Oh, that is just great to hear. So... Where is the big money when it comes to vinyl today? Well, you want to keep in mind there are five major categories, rock and roll, country, blues, soul, and jazz, and a sixth category known as pre-war blues. Pre-war blues, that 
pertains to records, blues records, that came out prior to World War II. They are extremely collectible, many of them selling for $10,000 and up. But for the common generation, uh, rock and roll, country, blues, soul, and jazz, the 50s and the 60s are overall the most collectible years. And certainly Elvis and the Beatles probably would be the two most collectible recording artists. In your opinion, what is worth more, Beatles or Elvis? Well, I think if you were to add up all their records, they would come up pretty close on the tie. Uh, the most valuable Beatles record probably is their album Yesterday and Today, which came out in 1966 with the Beatles on the cover dressed as butchers holding chopped up rubber dolls and raw meat. Uh, it's known as the Butcher Cover. It was around for about a week before it was recalled because they felt that it was quite offensive in 1966. Of course, today they wouldn't even notice it, but back then they did. And so if you have an original stereo butcher cover, uh, current value up to $15,000. And for Elvis, I would say it's a hit called Good Luck Charm, which went to number one in 1962. The common 45, worth about $40. But RCA also released Good Luck Charm as a 7-inch 33 which means it's the same size as a 45, but it plays at the speed of an album. So a 7-inch 33 of Good Luck Charm with its picture sleeve uh, would be up to around $20,000. Whoa. Why do you think the change there? Or did RCA just make a mistake? Or was that the trend at the time because albums were so popular? Well, it's kind of like New Coke. It was a bad idea. And uh, what happened was they figured, well, we can eliminate a speed on a turntable. We can save some money. But, of course, by 1960, when they started doing this, there were so many people that had 45s they wouldn't be able to play anymore that the idea was abandoned rather quickly. So there aren't too many of them around. Uh, there were four with Elvis, uh, and that's really where the money is because it's Elvis. Uh, all of them, you know, in that fifteen to twenty thousand dollar price range. Well, and it also makes me wonder: is is that why they invented that little um, spindle insert for the forty five? Would make it easier to play? Yeah, no, I, it could be. I, it was just a bad idea, you know, bad idea for the times. It's something, you know, whoever came up with it is probably not working for. Or it's worked for them very long. Yeah, and how many of us uh, would lose that or the thing would break or something like that? And <laughs> I don't know. Hey, recently on your uh, website, moneymusic.com, you mentioned Ray Charles. Now, they just re released True Genius, 90 songs, close to six hours of Ray Charles music. On the website, you talk about Ray's first big hit for Atlantic Records, 1955, and it was called I Got a Woman. From there, it was uh, what I'd say, I can't stop loving you. What you focus on is the fact that uh, songs he recorded before Atlantic on Swing Time Records. Is that where you find many valuable songs on vinyl, the off-labels? Yeah, anytime you have a major recording artist uh, starting out, they usually started out on a very small label like Elvis really did with Sun Records. It was a very, very small label back in the 50s, and it had tremendous distribution problems, and that's why it took a long time for records to get out around the country. But when Elvis went to RCA, who had no problem distributing records, uh, he really took off. 
So distribution is a big problem for small labels, but generally there are far fewer records by that artist on those small labels, and that's why they're worth so much more. But the artist has to be collectible in order for that to happen. If you have a recording artist who is not really that collectible, then even a rare record on a small label wouldn't make it collectible. That artist has to be collectible in the first place. Now, recently on a podcast about the Salem Civic Center, we talked about some of the first acts that ever performed there in the late 60s, one of which was Paul Revere and the Raiders. And you mentioned Paul Revere and the Raiders and uh, a little run-in they had with a fellow by the name of Mitch Miller. And again, that was a small label, Sandy Records. Right. We all remember singing along with Mitch and the bouncing ball on the TV. Uh but he was the A&R man, the artist and promotions man for uh, Columbia Records. He hated rock and roll. So anytime anybody came up with a rock and roll record, he put the kibosh on it. And he did that to the Kingsman, who also recorded Louie Louie, which became, uh, he did that for Paul Revere and the Raiders. And of course, the Kingsman, they had a giant hit with Louie Louie, but Paul Revere and the Raiders recorded it first. Sounds just as good, but uh, because of Mitch uh, Miller, uh, it didn't get any distribution. So uh, you get powerful people like that, they can uh, really hurt a recording uh, artist's career. Now, what fascinated me about that whole story, uh, the single is only worth $30, Louie Louie, by Paul Revere and the Raiders. Right. Yet you say uh, their one album on Sandy could bring 500 Yeah, very uh, rare for an artist to, or any artist, to have an album when they haven't even had a hit. So... Uh, that makes it very, very collectible. Uh, they do have some value. They're not as collectible, say, as the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, but uh, a lot of Paul Revere and the Raiders records are uh, collectible. When it comes to female singers, uh, I know recently you mentioned a Dusty Springfield, and there's one of her songs from 71 called Haunted. What puts the value, you, you've got that at a couple hundred dollars. What puts that so high over a son of a preacher man? Well, there's a form of music within rock and roll that is very collectible, and that is known as northern soul. And what that term means, in the northern part of England, about 15 years ago, there became a tremendous demand for obscure soul music records released in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s. And that's where that haunted record falls. It's not because so much it's Dusty Springfield, it's because it's rare Northern Soul. And uh, she's a great artist, was a great artist, but that would be her most valuable record, $200. Haunted on Atlantic Records. Mighty John Marshall, the record guy, is with us, and we're talking uh, vinyl records. Mighty John, I, I have to wonder, uh, we've talked about it in uh, in. These podcasts, also the one I do with Larry Bly, Two Larrys and a Mike, Muscle Shoals, was that kind of like what you were talking about with Dusty Springfield? You got the Muscle Shoals sound, then you've got the Stack sound, you got the Philly sound, uh, but it doesn't, it, does it have the same value as what you just mentioned about Dusty Springfield? Some of them do. I mean, I, I, Otis Redding comes to mind, his first records, uh, uh, one, uh, I think it's on the Confederate label, uh, Bamalama, uh, can sell up around $500 because of the obscure Northern Soul record. And Otis Redding can be quite collectible. But uh, a lot of the Northern Soul records that are collectible are by recording artists 
that you've never heard of. And that's why the obscurity uh, comes into play. I'll give you an example. Uh, 1967, Rita and the Tierras, Gone with the Wind is My Love. Nobody ever heard of Rita and the Tierras. Nobody ever heard of Gone with the Wind is My Love. But it's worth $4,500. So we put out a special guide on moneymusic.com called Records You Should Know About. And these are records that most people have never heard of by recording artists that most people have never heard of, but are worth a lot of money. And I go to so many yard sales, and I'll stand next to people who will thumb through a box of records, and I'll hear them say, never heard of that, never heard of that. And just because you never heard of it doesn't mean it's not worth a lot of money. And so we put that guide out just to make people aware of the fact uh, these uh, giant collectibles and be aware of them, even though you have never heard of them. Do deceased singers mean their music value automatically goes up? Case in point, I guess, Charlie Watts of the Stones. Is that even going to be a bump for the Rolling Stones as far as value? Uh, no. Well, I'll tell you, in some forms of collectibles, the death of the artist uh, may jump the value. But when it comes to vinyl, the death of a recording artist or any notoriety does not affect value. Only time will increase value. So um, a lot of people will think, you boy, he just died. Uh, I see something on eBay for 50 bucks. I think I'll buy it because he just, you know, no, don't buy it. There may be people that try to sell high-end records for the next 60 days after an artist dies, but prices always come back down. So uh, don't buy on uh, the idea that just because a recording artist has died, their records are going to be worth more money. Not a good idea. Is there something you mentioned going to yard sales, garage sales, wherever you can find uh, albums or, or 45s that have been tossed out, so to speak, or somebody's looking to have a bargain? Is one thing to look for the color of vinyl? Can that say a lot sometimes? Sometimes. Uh Colored vinyl can make a big difference. It all depends on how many were released in a particular color. One that I get the most questions on is the album that was out when Elvis died. It was called Moody Blue. And a lot of people will contact me and they'll write or call and say, you won't believe this. I've got this on blue vinyl. The record is actually blue. And then I tell them, well, 95% of them were blue. So that was the more common color worth up to about 20 bucks and 25,000 of them were released on black vinyl. And in this case, the black vinyl can sell up to $200 uh, because there were far fewer on black vinyl. But if there were far fewer, uh, whatever color, whichever has the lesser uh, um, um, copies uh, would be worth the most. One that comes to mind, the Flamingos, Doo-Wop is very collectible. They had a record called I Really Don't Want to Know, which was a pretty big hit for them. Black vinyl copy up to 2500 but red vinyl, because there were so far fewer of them, up to $6,000. So it all depends on how many were released in that particular color. Is there one album you wish you had hung on to knowing what you do today? Uh, well, that uh, Yesterday and Today album by the Beatles, uh, <laughs> I sold it early in my career for $400. So I wish I had held on to it. Yes. Uh one that I would like to have, that I have a friend that calls me every Christmas to remind me that he has the Elvis Christmas album from 1957 on red vinyl. 
speaking of colored vinyl. Uh, and of course I don't. So, you know, you know, oh, you know what I've got? I've got that red. Oh yeah. Thank you for calling. Have a great Christmas. <laughs> so people that have the regular black vinyl copy of the first Elvis Christmas album, uh, up around six to $800, but the red vinyl copies are up to $18,000. Whoa. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, you talk about that vinyl being from 1957. Let's talk about condition of vinyl when it comes to value. Uh, is gently played okay, or are you looking for, for perfection here? Well, we always say a record is worth up to because condition is very, very important. With an album, 99% of the time, the value is split evenly between the record and the cover with a 45 there were two separate values one just for the record and one just for what we call the picture sleeve that has a picture of the recording artist on it by themselves they are worth more than the record and the big example is the rolling stones 1968 they had a hit called street fighting man the record itself worth up to ten dollars but should you come across one of the picture sleeves for street fighting man that's up to $18,000. Wow. Yeah. Now, only, as far as I know, only 15 of them have been found. What happened was, 1968, it was the Democratic Convention in Chicago. There were riots in the street. Mayor Daley forbid local Chicago radio stations from playing that song because he feared more riots, even though the song wasn't meant about those riots, but it became identified with them. And the record company, wanting to, you know, maintain the clean-cut image of the Rolling Stones, <laughs> uh, decided not to release too many of the covers, which shows the protesters and the police uh, fighting with sure, each other. Sure, So I had a lot of history behind it. And uh, as I say, only 15 of them have been found so far. But you know there are more out there. Now, the question is... We don't know how many, but, you know... Obviously, the fewer of them, the more value. Yeah. Somebody needs to check Mick Jagger's basement. <laughs> you know, one that I found at a yard sale a couple of years ago with the Beatles, big hit for them, Can't Buy Me Love. Uh, the record worth up to about $30, but the picture sleeve is up to $800. So that was a good find. And, of course, you didn't draw attention to that at the yard sale, correct? I didn't. You know why? Because it, it's really a case of yard sales or flea markets of seller beware, not buyer beware know what these things are worth before you put them out there with a quarter for a quarter uh because there'll be people like me that'll come along and say thank you here's your quarter uh but you're only paying what they're asking so uh i don't feel too bad for them now there have been occasions where i've been at a yard sale and somebody will ask me well do you know what this thing is worth and i'll tell them and you still get a pretty good idea but if they don't ask, and I only had one occasion where I went back and uh, told a couple uh, about the value because I bought a uh, box of soundtracks, soundtracks for movies, TV shows, uh, can be quite collectible. And as I was walking away, I heard the wife say to the husband, can you believe somebody actually paid $5 for that? So I said, okay. So I turned around, I said, you see, this one here is $30, this one here is $40. Oh, here, you get $100. This John Wayne, this is $100 right here. And when I left, they were fighting with each other on how could they let that go. So that was, the, you know, that was one that I uh, always remember. And the one I get really teased about and made feel guilty for 
is I was at a church yard sale with another collector, and we both spotted the same Elvis record. And I grabbed it first, and they had a little uh, sticker of a quarter on it. And I paid it. And my friend says, before I paid, he says, see if they'll take a dime. So I said, would you take 10 cents for this? And he said, yo, sure. And I sold it for $1,300. So I feel very guilty about that. But that Sunday, I went to church and dropped a nice bundle in the collection. Bag. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I always remember that. Oh, that's a great, great story. Now, you do realize, Mighty John Marshall, that uh, your website, moneymusic.com, not only helps people, but also hurts you and your search. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> that, well, that's true. But, I mean, uh, I want people to know what these things are worth because— uh, I can't get to every yard sale. I have all I can do to keep up with just my neighborhood, you know, and I'm in Maine. So, you know, there are a lot of yard sales, but not like there would be in New York City or something like that. Oh, that's great to hear. You know, sadly uh, for you and what you do and what you've accomplished over the years regarding vinyl, artists... um, and and downloading and streaming today, th- they're probably not going to reap the benefits of a, a vinyl owner today. Correct? You're hearing more and more people coming or artists coming out on vinyl today, but will it have the same uh, value down the road? Uh, yes, because collectors want the original issues, and a lot of the music from the '60s and the '70s and the '80s have been reissued. And you can buy the same album, only it's usually got a different catalog number or something different to indicate that it's not an original issue. But collectors, they want the original issues from, you know, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So uh, I don't think it affects value. As far as new artists go, uh, you know, you're going to take 10 to 20 years to really find out who's collectible anyway. Money John Marshall, you've got a lot of information on moneymusic.com. Is there a problem with counterfeits? And bootlegs? Yes. Yes. Big problem. Anytime something is worth money, somebody is going to try to make a fake. And in the price guide that we put out, we list all known counterfeits and describe them so you'll know. Uh, For example, uh, Rolling Stones, again, had a big hit called Beast of Burden. Uh, And the picture sleeve uh, is worth up to $3,000. The picture sleeve, the original, is a very light lavender color. Uh, The fakes have a much deeper grape purple color to them. They look identical, but they're a deeper color. And also, if you were to feel the paper, an expert could tell you that it was a fake. Uh, And I always tell people, if you see something that's really, really valuable on eBay or any other online auction, and, you know, they're selling it for 10 bucks, and you know it's worth $3,000. You know, red flag. It, it's probably a counterfeit. How about mono versus stereo? Because in my early days of, of radio, the, the stations got a, a mono copy, uh, maybe a stereo copy on the other side, or both sides were mono. Well, it all depends on how many released in each version. In the beginning of the 1960s, mostly everything was in mono. So to find a stereo version would be rare and worth more. By the end of the 60s, mostly everything was in stereo. So to find a mono version would be worth more. In the mid-60s, they didn't know what to do. So they released them in both stereo and mono. Uh, 
Uh, and so it can make a big difference. I'll tell you a great example. Paul McCartney, big hit album for him called Ram, a stereo copy worth up to about $30. But a monocopy, should you find one, currently up to $5,000. Wow. Uh, yes, Beatles, especially all their albums in mono or stereo can make a big difference. Uh, uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, an original mono can sell up to 700 where a stereo is probably more in the $100 price range. Well, I'm sure you have piqued a lot of folks' interest. Where is the best place to find vinyl treasures? Well, other than yard sales, don't forget uh, estate sales. Don't forget thrift stores like Goodwill or St. Vincent de Paul or any of those that sell records. Uh, You know, there's a Goodwill about a mile from where I live. And every Monday morning when they open up at 9 o'clock, there's 10 record collectors standing waiting for those doors to open. So uh, it's a matter of, you know, being first or being lucky. Uh, but those are some great places to find some valuable records. Again, if you know what you're looking for. So if someone has vinyl with value, what should they do? Sell or hang on to it? Uh, taking a chance, it will continue to increase in value? Well, that's a great question. I always tell people if you can afford to hang on to them and you don't need the money right now, uh, hang on to them because again, they all go up in value. It's some that go up in value faster than others. Uh, but if you're in a hurry to sell, um, you know, you got to sell, you got to sell. But when you don't need to sell is the time to sell because you can wait until you get your price. Uh, if you go to a dealer, generally a dealer is not going to pay more than 30% of value. And that's considered fair because the dealer will sell some of them right away. Others may take longer to sell. Others may never sell. So 30% seems to be a fair value. Uh, if you go to the collectors and you can find, you know, online, go directly to the collectors, you're more liable to get more money. Uh, but there's two things to keep in mind when you sell. Number one, what is the current market value? And number two, what did you pay for it originally? So I go to that yard sale and I pay a dime for a record, you know, and I sold it for $1,300, but if somebody had said, I give you $100, hey, I still made a lot of money. So always try and keep that in mind. What's it worth, and what did you pay for it? So this is kind of like uh, the slot machines of vinyl. Yeah, really, huh? It's like stocks and <laughs> you know bonds and everything else like that. It's, you know, what did you really invest it for, and what's it selling for today? So before we close out here, uh, tell the folks about what they're going to see at moneymusic.com. It's not just about vinyl, correct? Not just about vinyl. Uh, it's mostly about vinyl, but uh, if you go there, you can get our price guide, which is nineteen ninety-five. It's on a CD. You pop it into your computer, and you can look up the value of any uh, record that you have. We also put out a buyer's guide, people listed by state who buy records. And so that's an option for you. And, uh, we, you know, I've, I've authored a couple of books, and they're available on my website. They have nothing to do with records. Uh, they're just novels. And uh, we'd love to have you uh, read, read those. And we always love criticism, if it's good criticism. <laughs> but people ask me, your books, are there anything like Stephen King? And I'll say, well, do you like Stephen King books? Oh, I love them. And I'll say, they're just <laughs> like Stephen King. And if they say, no, I don't like Stephen King books, I'll say, well, they're nothing like Stephen King. Oh, that's so, great. 
Uh, Mighty John Marshall, you know, it is always fun chatting with you about vinyl and their worth. Hey, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and it's great to catch up with you. All right, Larry, nice talk with you. Good luck in the future. Thank you for listening to Episode 33 of Larry Doughty Mike's Side with guest Mighty John Marshall, the record guy. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow Mike's Side on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to share this podcast with someone you know. There's a new one every other week. Join me here next time for Larry Doughty Mike's Side. See you then. <laughs>